Aaron, when are you going to let me have some coffee while we record this podcast? You will have coffee when you are old enough, sir. Now drink your milk. But mom, I need the caffeine badly. I don't want to go to Tashi Station and get the power converters. <laughs> that might be crossing the streams a little bit. Yeah, I know, yeah. right? <laughs> well, welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, a horror movie podcast, not a Star Wars podcast, hosted by me, the coward, Derek, and my co-host, movie monster boy, Aaron, in which we dissect the fears, phobias, and social relevancy of horror movies across all ages and subgenres, as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies and horror junkies alike. On this episode, we have a guest that we haven't had on for a little while. Kelly, Hell welcome yeah. back to the show. You chose another endearing, goofy 80s horror movie, too, and waxwork for this episode. But uh, yeah, welcome back, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm definitely glad to be back. I, I know it took some um, finagling to get it, but uh, super happy to be here. Hell yeah. Awesome. And Aaron, what is new in your world? Anything? Just work as hell. It's that time of year. Yep. That's all I'll it's say. It's the and, worst uh, time of year. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. either way, you know, it's nice to take a little bit of a break and actually get to hang out with friends. So either way, yeah, Kelly and I are both going to be pretty busy going forward for the next few weeks. This being our first episode in December, I think it's safe to say at least, I don't know about you, Kelly, but for Aaron and I, we both kind of hate Christmas and the Christmas season for similar and different reasons but i'm guessing you're not too fond of the seasons for certain reasons too honestly like i i don't know i I, it's weird i don't i don't really have a disdain for the season but then again i'm super chill literally my birthday is saturday and i'm like it's just another day so oh well shit happy birthday thank y'all thank y'all thank y'all yeah it's it's uh i think the biggest thing is i live vicariously through my son now so elias of course is super excited about christmas so yeah yeah that changes things for sure yeah and this will be my first christmas with a child as well so i'm trying to turn my grumpy scrooge ways around for her sake yeah and try and like like you said live vicariously through them and and see their excitement and everything and granted she's maybe a little too young for this christmas to like really register what's going on but i think she'll like be fascinated by the christmas tree oh, and lights and all that so yeah but yeah so i'm gonna try and hunt the good as they say with her experience but with all that out of the way uh let's move on to our recommendation section that we do at the beginning of each episode and which we talk about other horror movies, books, TV shows, video games, comics, etc. Each of us has consumed lately and we recommend it to each other. And hopefully you, our audience, hears something that you want to check out. We usually go guest first. So with that, Kelly, have you been getting into any other horror lately? I've got one that just kind of pops because I saw it pretty recently. I, I got Elias. I've had him for a couple of days. He had his Thanksgiving break early, but uh, I took him to see Ghostbusters Afterlife the other night. Okay. How was that? It was everything I didn't know I needed. Really? Oh, man. Okay. Uh, Wow, not what I expected. Okay. Directed by Jason Reitman, uh, Ivan Reitman's son. And, you know, Ivan Reitman directed uh, one and two. But all I'll say is, like, it's definitely a love letter from Jason to his dad. And it's a love letter to all the people who actually really, really enjoy Ghostbusters. For me, though, it was kind of cool watching it with Elias. He hasn't been to many movies with me. And most movies, he he just turned six. Like, most movies, he's a six-year-old. Or before that, he was younger. So it was, like, really hard. We go on off days, but like, yo, he sat the whole time and he just, he ate it up. So funny enough, the last two days we watched Ghostbusters 1 and 2. Had you not shown him those before? He had never seen Ghostbusters 1 or 2 before. Okay. Hell yeah. And so it was weird going backwards, but what was cool is for a six-year-old to get references and to tie in, he was like, wait, daddy, that was blah, blah, blah. And this is, he's a six-year-old, but he's super smart. Yeah. It was cool to see him work backwards, if that makes sense. Yeah. 
that yeah. was a different experience. But that's all I say, Ghostbusters. So it's definitely worth it. I I think the Rotten Tomato was kind of high or above mid, but the audience was really high. And you know, I go with the audience on this one. Yeah, I noticed that because it's kind of frustrating to try and figure out if I want to devote the time to try and check this movie out. Which I'm glad we have you on the show saying this because this kind of is pushing me now towards taking the time to check it out. Because since I'm raising an infant, my time is limited when in terms of seeing movies and stuff like that. So I want to like really go after stuff that I'm interested in or stuff that's like must see. But the thing that's frustrating is like the critics are going back and forth. It's either half the critics like this movie and say it's endearing, especially like you said, a love letter to the old Ghostbusters, which peek behind the curtain, the original Ghostbusters is probably in my top 10 movies of all time. It might be my favorite comedy of all time. And then the other half of the critics fucking hate it for some reason like say it's basically doing everything that modern movies are doing that's kind of ruining franchises and like it's hunting nostalgia too much fan service yeah. nostalgia blah 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 yeah but the thing i've noticed is the user scores kind of across the board have been extremely positive for this movie granted i have this weird thing i've been seeing lately where like people are being contrarian towards critics in general um when especially when it comes to movie reviews but i think it's kind of undeniable how high the audience score because usually when you see that audience score is kind of more lingering around like the 70%, 80% range where like, okay, y'all are either like review bombing this with positive reviews or whatever, but audience scores have been 95% and higher from what I've seen. So yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm conflicted about this movie, but if you're going to recommend it, like I trust your taste, Kelly. So that gives me hope and like pushes me to maybe go see it myself. Well, I hope you do. I, it's one of those things for me where like, I'm not easy to please. Like, Aaron, I feel sometimes, you know, cinema is in the brain. You know what I mean? Like it's always, I'm always thinking about something and I'm always like tying to, and there's just so, so many thoughts. Like literally I live and breathe movies like 24 seven, but this one was one that was, it just really touched me, man. And and I know endearing is definitely a good spirited word, but it just rocked. Like the movie just felt good. And it, to me, it just fucking was, it was, it was cool. It was very cool. Yeah. That's, that's good to hear. I would say last quick note. I think maybe sitting next to a six-year-old, my six-year-old specifically, which I can kind of remember seeing Ghostbusters for the first time around that age. I think maybe that had a quality to it as well, but it just, it was just really, really cool. Like I really enjoyed the movie and I can't say anything. I, I can't say anything at all. You, you just got to go see it if you are going to give it the time and I hope you do. Kind of one of the curiosities about this movie, because I like him as an actor, but I thought it was an interesting fit and I wasn't sure how I felt about him being in the movie. How is Paul Rudd? So specifically talking about the sexiest man alive, people 2021. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. I've loved Paul Rudd since what was it Halloween 6 curse <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> like I've literally loved him since those days when he wasn't the Paul Rudd that we know but I'll say like he's better in some films and some roles than others but he does fit really really well and like again can't say anything but like when you watch like I think he did a good job he really did but he's Paul yeah. Rudd Paul Rudd is He's, he's just at a certain point, I think, in his career where, like, you know, at least a filmmaker, a director who's bringing him on or a producer, they know what they're getting out of Paul Rudd. Judd Apatow started this thing, and I forget what it's called, but it's just, it's like the laugh or something or whatever it's called. It's all about that improvisational comedy and, like, how like, literally on the drop of a hat, these people are going to deliver something that, that will just, I guess, keep everybody on set on their toes or whatever. But, like, Paul Rudd definitely comes, I think, from that schooling of comedy. 
he makes the role his own and it kind of adds a little flavor to it so i really enjoyed him in it Good. oh yeah yeah because yeah, i i like to see him and stuff and i think you're right i think he's kind of a safe bet for better or for worse but almost always for better you you kind of know what he's going to deliver and yeah he's just kind of one of those actors i just kind of always enjoy popping up and stuff but it was interesting to see him be cast in this movie I, i'll throw one one more out it's really not horror it definitely is sci-fi and when i say that y'all are gonna know exactly what i'm talking about but i'm gonna make it super super fast this won't be a quick thing but anyone listening if you haven't seen dune uh you know based on frank herbert's novel i've literally no lie i've seen it three times in cinema i saw it twice in dolby and once in imax it just left hbo max like two days ago i think i literally watched it on hbo max probably like 20 times like i would fall asleep to it i would literally just put it on my soul would just you know rest to dune but um <laughs> i mean denis Villeneuve and greg frazier as cinematographer hands down i know i'm talking very early dune is about to sweep the oscars there's a lot of great films that are coming out soon or have been out but like denis he did his thing no matter how much of a love letter Blade Runner was to Ridley Scott and you know the original 100% like what he did for Dune I think has created one of those rare like sci-fi masterpieces and eh, there's no real horror elements in it but I, I think there's some horrific shit there is there really is there there is but just you know when you ask about a recommendation and and what's just been on my mind 24-7 I rebought the novel I bought the audiobook I'm going hard right now and in Dune Fair and then you know we're getting Dune Part 2 October 2023 so I uh, I couldn't be more excited for honestly just cinema goers and I couldn't be more excited for Denis because he literally is crafting something that for a long time was unimaginable. Yeah, the amount of people who you know, gave it a swing over the years and the amount of people saying like this is just, you know, an unadaptable book, which I've never felt it was unadaptable. Just it's going to cost a lot of money and take a lot of work, which is what they've clearly put into it. Yeah, How many views are you up to now, Aaron? So I have still only seen it twice. I okay. did not end up getting the time to go see it in IMAX. Uh, when it was playing in IMAX around us, it was only there for like two weeks and then immediately bumped out. So I'm kind of disappointed I didn't get seated in IMAX, but Kelly Derrick has joked with me like, you know, I know you're hype about Doom, but we can't turn this into a Dune podcast. <laughs> Not really, but he's he's made a joke about that before. But yeah, your boy literally just pre-ordered the uh, 4K Steelbook January uh, that went up for sale today. Yeah. So yeah, let's let's say I am definitely, definitely. hyped for it. I'm I'm super um, excited. I enjoyed it a lot. All right, well. <laughs> On to you, Aaron. What uh, horror have you been getting into lately? Uh, so to continue conversation about new stuff that's currently out, um, and Kelly, I don't know if you have seen this one or not, but I did manage to catch, because again, it played for like two fucking weeks and it was gone. Uh, I did manage to catch Edgar Wright's new movie last night in Soho. So good. Um, it was pretty solid. I enjoyed it a lot. It's not as manic as his other movies, I will say. This one's definitely more measured. I mean, it's still fast. It still has like that propulsive Edgar Wright kind of energy to it, but it's just not as bam, 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 kind of hyperactive like his other movies are. I would say this is easily, hands down, the best modern attempt at recreating an Italian giallo. It very much has that feel. It's a lot of the same tropes. It's a lot of the same stylistic things. This is very much the best attempt at, hey, I want to do a modern take on that. I will say that the twists are not super hidden necessarily. Like if you're paying attention to what's going on, you'll probably figure out what's going on pretty easily. But it's more about the journey of where that's going and just the build. It's very stylish. 
the soundtrack kicks ass like always. Oh, yeah. All the lead performances were great, and there was so much good technical bullshit in the movie. Lots of stuff with mirrors and lots of... I mean, if you've seen the trailer for the movie, you know it's a lot of Thomas and McKenzie looking into a mirror and Anya Taylor-Joy staring back at her from the other side of the mirror, right? And listening to recent interviews with Edgar Wright where he's talking about, oh no, we tried to do as much of that kind of stuff practically as we could instead of just... like that. Cutting corners and doing green screen and filling shit in. Like, they did a lot of weird double-sided walls and shit like that. They hired people for some of the fill-in parts who have twins, and that way they can literally have each twin, you know, on one side of the mirror. So there was a lot of stuff like that where it was interesting listening to him, and he's talking about, oh yeah, no, we went to Poltergeist 3 as reference for how to do a lot of these mirror special (laughs) effects and do it all practically. You know, so he's definitely putting a lot of time and effort into the craft of the movie. The performances are all solid. I I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. So it's definitely worth checking out. It should be out on VOD very soon, if it's not already. Uh, Like I mentioned, I caught literally the last showing last night, last theater in my entire area that it was playing. So I'm glad I got to squeeze that one in when I still had the opportunity. Last thing I'll mention. So past episodes, we've been, you know, kind of little bit by little bit talking about Halloween. We talked about Rob Zombie. So I mentioned rewatching House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects because I have not seen the third movie in that trilogy that came out a while back, Three from Hell. Before I got to that one, I made the mistake of watching 31, which, uh, I mean, if you just like lots of Nazi clown wandering around in an industrial facility with steam and pipes and just yelling and screaming for an hour and 40 minutes, it's fine, but nothing about that movie worked for me. This was the one that, like, okay, I'm in director jail a little bit from Halloween. Let me crowdsource and crowdfund this movie from my fans. And it feels like a movie that was made with fan money because it's uh, not great. Is 31 tied to the other two? I don't think so. This is like a separate, its own kind of thing. I just watched it because it was the next one that I had not seen. I had not seen 31 or 3 from Hell. Right. Those were the two most recent ones. So I kind of figured, like, let me just go ahead and watch this as well since it's on Shudder. I I remember the poster, like, looking rad as fuck, like, looking very grindhousey but I didn't hear anything about it. Yeah, I mean, the poster looks cool. There's some cool imagery in this. Richard Brake is like the standout performance of the movie. You know, when people talk about, oh yeah, I just want like a dark and gritty Joker. I want Heath Ledger Joker more. I want Jared Leto to really be the unhinged Joker. He's damaged, right? Like, Richard Brake is the best truly fucked up serial killer Joker that we never had. He's fantastic in it. He's the best thing about the movie. And he's just one of those guys that, like, always plays scumbags because he has a scumbag character actor face. You know, so he's always playing villains, but he's especially good in this movie. But it is just, hey, we captured this group of people. We're going to throw them in this weird industrial plant facility that's just a bunch of giant open rooms and catwalks and steam pipes. And they're just going to get stalked by these clown murderer people with different gimmicks, right? So one is a little person who's a Nazi. Cool. Uh, two are called Sex and Death, and it's like E.G. Daly, who's the voice of 
Tommy Pickles from the Rugrats, and then the, like, super tall Nordic dude who played one of the Nihilists from The Big Lebowski, you know, and they're, like, in underwear walking around with chainsaws, like, sure, whatever. It was not fun. It was not interesting. It was kind of a slog. I don't know that the movie's even worth watching for the Richard Brake performance, because you can literally pull that up on YouTube. But all that said, I went into Three from Hell really bracing myself for like, okay, has he completely lost any filmmaking touch that he had? What is Three from Hell about to be? And I was pleasantly surprised it was not as bad as what I was expecting. It feels... Uh, it's about the same pitch as Devil's Rejects or House of a Thousand Corpses. It definitely has some of the flashier editing and grindhousey kind of feel. This one especially has the like whole idea of Manson energy and all the like general public fascination and even worship of these killers as they yeah. are in jail as kind of celebrity psychopaths, right? That's kind of an interesting thing to put out at this day and age because true crime is so, so popular right now, especially yeah. in like the podcast scene. And there is a degree of honesty there. We're just fascinated by that kind of shit. Yeah. And so I will say at least this movie is, I think, better made. He had a budget. There's, I think, a better cast in this movie. I mean, certainly when you put Bill Mosley in anything, like your cast is going to be elevated to that next level a little bit just because he's just the right weird energy to bring to a movie like this. But Richard Brake is back. He's the other half-brother of this, you know, family that's just been dot 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 somewhere else. Unfortunately, Sid Haig is not in this one much because he died while they were filming. So he's in the beginning very briefly, but then he's not in the rest of it. But, you know, I think my gripe overall is on one hand, it moves the story forward, question mark, because, you know, they didn't die at the end of Devil's Rejects, of course. They just got massively injured, turned into Swiss cheese, but they all survived. Cool. You know, so it follows so many of the same beats, though, as Devil's Rejects. It's we all break out. We hold this group of people hostage in a house. Spoiler alert, we murder all of them. Big surprise. And then we go on the run. And then we end up holed up at a whorehouse again. This time it's just in Mexico. And then a bunch of people show up to take them out. And they end up turning the tables and then they survive, right? Like it's the same basic plot as Devil's Rejects. So it doesn't really do anything different in that sense. You know, there's a third new character and they go to Mexico. That's kind of all that this one really does differently. So I was a little bit disappointed that there wasn't more to it than that, that it didn't kind of move the story into another direction, but it definitely leaves it open for like, oh yeah, we could go back to these three characters anytime we want. So, you know, inevitably I'm sure we'll get another one you know, right now he's lined up to do the Munsters movie. So we'll see, you know, if that actually for sure happens and gets off the ground. Yeah, or it I forgot like about fall that. apart in pre-production. Yeah. But it's the kind of thing where I could see him returning to these three characters. Bill Mosley's still around. Obviously his wife is still here. Richard Brake is still here. Like, there's your three new characters. Go. I could see him doing more with that. But I was at least happy that it was a little bit more of a step backwards to Devil's Rejects than it was... 31. So yeah, I could see myself rewatching Three from Hell further down the road. I don't think I'm ever going to rewatch 31. There's no reason to rewatch 31 in my opinion. So anyway, yeah, I'm done with Rob Zombie. I, I've seen all the Rob Zombie movies now. I can go back to like, I'm fine. You know, I'm still not won over by Rob Zombie. I'm still yeah. not a complete hater of Rob Zombie. I'm still just kind of in the middle where like, 
it's fine. It doesn't really do anything for me massively one way or the other. There's things I appreciate about it. There's things I dislike about it, but I'm, I'm still kind of right in the middle. Yeah. Here's how I feel about Rob Zombie. I'm kind of in the middle with you, but I want so bad to like Rob Zombie, like to like sure, that style, yeah. to like his movies, because when he is at it, his highs are really high when he's hitting it in movies that I've seen, even just recently with his Halloween one and two, like the high points of those movies are pretty fucking high, like pretty great. But oh, my Lord, when he does like either problematic shit or like just stuff that slogs it's like oh my god come on i'm just eye rolling the entire time and that's the thing you know i think the two things that he needs because honestly like i think he's a good filmmaker you see i do too bits and pieces of his movies i think he's a good filmmaker he's the better version of Zack snyder to me like Zack snyder i don't want to like and i'm not on board with Zack snyder at all but i understand that he has this fandom and i understand like why people okay i was about to say that's a wild take i'm part i'm I'm part of that fandom snyder fan but (laughs) that's like a whip Whiplash comparison to me. Well, okay. So the reason why I compare the two is I feel like Zack Snyder and Rob Zombie have people that either love them or fucking hate them. Sure, that comparison zapped. Yeah, I'm kind of in the middle with both of them, but I lean more towards hating Zack Snyder and I lean more towards loving Rob Zombie. I've kind of given up on trying to figure out why Zack Snyder works for people. For my personally, for myself. So if it works for you or anyone out there, that's great. I'm happy for you. But I haven't given up on Rob Zombie yet. I want to like Rob Zombie. If that makes sense. So what I was going to say a second ago, and I'll connect this to the comparison you just made. I think the two things that would help Rob Zombie would be he needs a fucking editor and he needs a (laughs) co-writer. I think he needs somebody else to kind of filter his ideas through. And he needs somebody else kind of saying like, "Eh, do we really need this? Do we really need this? Let's cut this part out. Let's fix this a little bit. Right. He needs that. And he needs a budget. He's the kind of director that needs resources because it's so clear looking from like even something like House of a Thousand Corpses early when he really wasn't working with a ton of money to 31 where it's night and day like oh god you have to have resources he's the kind of person that like especially with his whole rock career he doesn't know how to not have resources at his fingertips i don't think he knows how to flex that muscle of i have to creatively work with little right and i guess again for your comparison i think snyder could use a little bit of the same i think he could use a co-writer to filter his stuff through and a better editor and i think on the opposite thing i think he needs his resources maybe dropped a little i think he needs to work at a more like here's your restrictions now overcome them that's an interesting take you know, yeah. when you just have blank checks because you and your wife are both producers and so pretty much every movie he makes he's got an unlimited checkbook right and that gets away from him quite often where things just go too just here's everything right to be fair kelly you it sounds like you've been wanting to say something and that's that's where i was gonna stop yeah kelly so way in here because you do like Zack snyder yeah i'm glad you're on here because both aaron and i are a little more critical of him well so i i'm critical of snyder i think and one thing that does get me sometimes in, in film conversations is like my bias is with directors 100 percent. my background yeah. is in directing i went to school for directing so like i get a little i guess single lane focus on directors Snyder had his he got a little slap in the face uh, and had to kind of readjust a little bit in his career because if you really break down his career like Sucker Punch was the first film that was literally original it had no you know source material and like Sucker Punch was like a box office 
fail. And I agree with with Aaron, like he had inflated budget for Sucker Punch and, and his wife, Deborah Snyder, like, of course, she she's able to wheel and deal the way she does. But one thing that's cool is like, I don't think we have talked about Army of the Dead. And I'm not going to say that I loved it. But what I will say is, you know, Netflix aside, you know, in that contract, he kind of went back to square one. And when I look at Rob Zombie, I haven't seen a Rob Zombie film since I watched the Salem one. That was the biggest heap of garbage that I had seen in a while. So I don't know if y'all like the Salem one with Sherry Moon Zombie, but I don't know Aaron and Derek. I don't know if that was before or after the Halloweens, but I do know it was before 31 and it was before anything else. So like, I guess because of y'all, I do end the conversation. I want to go back and, and at least watch Three from Hell. Words of Salem. It actually came out after Halloween 1 and 2. It came out in 2012. That's what I was about to say. I couldn't remember if it came out after both of them That's what or I if thought. it came out in okay. between them. But yeah, yeah, That is yeah. what I thought, but it was before the other two. And like, I just had, I haven't seen the other two because of the Salem one, but you know, Rob Zombie being a rock star and having a voice and trying his hand at filmmaking, which I fucking loved and like coming out with House of a Thousand Corpses and just how fresh it was and how visceral it was, you know, and then you have somebody like Zack Snyder who literally went to art school, was a music video director, got his shot with the Dawn of the Dead remake or whatever you want to call it. First film he did, I was in love with. And then his second film, was 300. I think that's what kind of solidified him in a group. I can say what you will, 300 was huge. Financially, a, a huge success. It was oh, yeah. a pop culture movie. Like everyone quoted it, spoofed it, whatever. Made for, I think 300 was made for like 30 mil and opening weekend, it did quadruple that. You know what I mean? But I guess I do have a little soft spot for Zach just because I do, I really visually, I love Zach Snyder's work. And I think that's the art background in him coming out in his filmmaking. The reason, the only reason why I brought up Army of the Dead is he really kind of went back to square one. He was the DP. Red created him these like really small rigs. So a lot of Army of the Dead was done on shoulder rig, which is just not a whole film done, you know, of this caliber, I guess, coming to distribution by Netflix. Typically, you know, Netflix may be like, wait, what? You're doing everything on shoulder? But like, I remember there was this production steal of Zach in this car holding the, the red. And I was like, I guess the reason why it's that allured me a little bit is it's what I miss about filmmaking you know like i i miss being in the actual like take and and by that i just mean like being in the car with the actors or you know what i mean like i i don't know i i feel like if we give zach a little more time you know i think we might have a resurgence of what i feel he really is capable of i don't disagree that he kind of went off the rails a little bit because everything was inflated so we talk about the bomb in some aspects that Batman vs Superman was and you know I actually enjoyed Man of Steel a lot but even you know Justice League I don't know what y'all felt about his cut of Justice League and yeah I know running time is a big thing for some people but like I like to know that at the end of the day there's a single creative vision and what we mean by that of the craft is like yes you know it's a collaborative art and there are hundreds upon thousands of people that work on this single vision. I don't know. I think I think Zach's always delivered for me. Like I even I was talking to someone the other day, and it's so funny that we bring this up. And I'll digress after this. I even enjoyed Guardians of the Gahul. That's the one of his I have not seen, so I can't speak to that one at all. Yeah, I haven't either. What it reminded me of, in a way, I'm really going out of bounds when I say this, but it reminded me of I'm gonna say heavy metal. It's definitely no heavy metal, but like just a mature animated film or the original Hobbit. You know, they had all these themes, you know, six-year-old or five-year-old aren't really going to understand thematically. It just, it kind of spoke to me on a different level and I guess that's why I liked it. But I say that to say my bias is definitely with, with directors specifically and like Zach, I just, I just love Zach and I try oh. and be impartial, but I agree with, with what y'all said. 
I mean, regardless of what any of us say, both Zombie and Snyder have diehard fan bases. So there is a reason their styles work for people in many ways. And while Snyder doesn't necessarily work for me, he works for you, Kelly. And then at the end of the day, I am still trying to get Zombie to work for me. And I want Zombie to work for me because just going back to his his first Halloween film, and, and we talked about this a little bit when I had discussed it on previous recommendations, when he is just strictly focusing on remaking Halloween, like the actual Halloween parts of his remake are phenomenal. I want him to make something that really works for me. Now, granted, I'll admit, I have seen bits and pieces of House of a Thousand Corpses and Devil's Rejects, but haven't actually sat down and watched start to finish any of them. And I know on our podcast, we will eventually do at least House of a Thousand Corpses. I think you should then, because they're very different from the two Halloween movies you watched, I will say. Yeah. So, um, anything else, Aaron? <laughs> I guess we got sidetracked. No, that's that's all I got to talk about. I mean, like I said, I you know part of horror and part of what we talk about on this show a lot is kind of like what Kelly was just saying, especially with like the masters of horror, right? Like the old auteur dudes, Carpenter, Hooper, Romero, Wes Craven. The list goes on, right? So much of the time, they are hampered by not having enough resources to fully execute their vision, having studios interfere and producers interfere with their vision and it's one of those things where you know you always wish they could have had better and now it's weird because we're at a point where we've got guys like zombie and snyder who pretty much are just let free to do what they want and it's kind of still a mixed bag on like you need something to kind of buffer and polish and refine and you know kind of work through some of that stuff a little bit as much as on one hand i want to say like i think everybody should have the resources they need to work with sometimes there is something about the restrictions of having roadblocks right or having limitations or even setting like personal challenges like kelly was saying there's no reason Zack snyder had to shoot fucking shoulder mount for that entire movie right but that's something he chose to do and he took it on himself right and that's admirable so you know i think as long as directors continue to challenge and push themselves and try something new and they build a team of people around them as well that they can work with that are not a afraid to say hey raise hand i have an idea i think there's something that you know we could do differently i'm not sure about this thing like hash that stuff out talk through it because there's a chance there could be collaboration there that could make things better so like i said it's interesting that you know people have in a lot of ways more resources now than ever and more freedom to make whatever they want than ever but at the same time there's still those roadblocks you know and i think snyder is always going to be an interesting conversation just because of the debacle that all of his dc stuff has been period like it or hate it or whatever those productions have been a fucking mess and it's everybody's faults and we've come to learn you know and i i used to be one of these people we've who blamed it all on him but we've come to learn that no, there's so much more that goes into that it's not always just the director right yeah it, it justice league got away from him in a lot of ways not because of his fault yeah well horror is kind of the same way to an interesting degree and as much as i appreciate you know, the old guys, I think there's a lot of new talent out there that's doing really good work. And I think it's one of those things where we have to appreciate the old guys and gals. I mean, there were, you know, women directors then too doing hard, not many, unfortunately. 
but we have to appreciate at least the work that they put in and how hard they had to push to get what they wanted. Carpenter's another good example. Carpenter's been on my mind a lot lately because Blank Check has been covering him. But just the fact that, you know, the majority of his movies weren't successful when they came out and were only reassessed so wild. a decade later. Yeah, and that's now so wild you know, to me. He has this unheralded 8 to 11 movie stretch of just nothing but solid fucking gold. But that's only after the fact. And he's now just comfortable, but he's still sitting back and just going like fuck me you know like i could have had it a lot better <laughs> had people appreciated this stuff in its time uh he's he's fine he's making his electronica music that kicks ass yeah, yeah, yeah i mean he's he's found like a whole new area of his career to go into but you know it's one of those things where you know i think we have to appreciate and be thankful thanks you know it's thanksgiving season right now right we're recording this a few days before thanksgiving peek behind the curtain be thankful for like the work that the old guard had to put in so that Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Anna Liliamapur, like all these new people that are working in the genre were able to like come in execute their visions and put out something idiosyncratic and interesting and weird and cool and everything else and be trusted to do it i mean and you even still have a little bit of legacy like david cronenberg's son now oh sure yeah yeah. but now possessor so you know it's nice to see kind of how that's progressed but you know again go back to rob zombie i would like to see him do something you know maybe a little more off the beaten path and i'm hoping monsters is that monsters has a lot of potential to be really fucking fun i didn't even know he was doing that yeah he's like yeah. doing a live action monsters movie which i'm sure it's gonna be fucking the guy with the long face and the big teeth who was in his last two movies i can't jeff daniel phillips i think uh, i'm sure it's gonna be like him as herman munster and his <laughs> wife sherry moon oh sherry's you definitely know, gonna be it, in it, it sherry will be in it yeah the casting is you know kind of writes itself to a degree just as long as it's not the monsters but they're all yelling at each other about like yeah living in dirt it's not and... just them screaming the fuck word at each other constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Using gay expletives at each other, yeah. Yeah. Just so being super problematic. It has the potential to be a lot of fun. And on one hand, I hope he pushes himself a little bit. I hope he's got some other creative people that he trusts around him to kind of give him some feedback. And I hope that they're giving him the budget he needs to make a fucking Monsters movie. Yep. So that it doesn't just feel like an episode of the TV show and it feels kind of locked in. So, you know, time will tell, I guess. I have a feeling you're going to probably edit a bit of that conversation. <laughs> ah, a little bit. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. I, what have you got for recommendations, Derek? Uh, yeah, I also don't have much. I've been moving. I have been like playing video games and reading some stuff, but like nothing really horror specific. And I'm not going to have too much for this episode. But I have to say, starting off, one of my sisters is in town visiting, kind of helping us out while we finalize this move, watching Autumn for us. And a little trick she's found is for some reason Autumn is fascinated by the song What's This by Danny Elfman from the film The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> I have been watching scenes of The Nightmare Before Christmas since then. That song What's This might be my favorite song in that movie or the Oogie Boogie song. That's also a great one. If those are the two that she's kind of drawn to, my guess is the light colors. It's got to be the like neon of the Christmas yeah, lights yep. and the glow in the dark shit from those two scenes. Well, and she also, we've also shown her this is Halloween, this is Halloween, that song too, which is also <laughs> iconic. Boys and girls of every age, wouldn't you like to see something strange? Come with us and you will see, this is our show of Halloween, this is Halloween, 
Everybody make a scene. Drink or treat. Tell the neighbors on a um, in fact, I have added the Halloween Town theme and the Oogie Boogie song to our Spotify playlist because it's pretty appropriate. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, The Nightmare Before Christmas is a phenomenal movie. It is both one of my favorite Halloween and Christmas movies at the same time, and I think a lot of people would agree with that. It's some kinder trauma. Like, this is a great movie to start a young child off in trying to get them interested in horror. All the Halloween stuff has some creepy visuals. I know it's not directed by him, but I know he has influence on it. Mr. Edward Scissorhands himself, Tim Burton. And I never realized that Danny Elfman actually voiced Jack Skellington in this. As well as doing the music? He did the singing. He did the singing. He did the singing voice. Okay, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's dark fantasy film. I would count this as a kinder trauma movie. Maybe not capital H horror, but I think there's enough there to like, you could start off a really young kid and they won't be too freaked out by it, but they it might kind of get them interested in a horror. What's a perfect recommend for like when this episode is coming out? Yeah, because it's, it's Christmas. Christmas time, so yeah. watch that shit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm guessing it's on Disney Plus. It has to be, right? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, yeah. So I would be reminisced if I didn't bring up the nightmare before christmas because again she's obsessed with the song what's this which is a great song so actual to like capital h horror recommendations staying again with music i'm gonna bring up cool keith (laughs) all right for those of you who don't know who cool keith is he is a very experimental rapper from new york he has been around since i think the fucking 80s actually he's put out so much music the way i describe cool keith is he is the butthole surfers for hip-hop i would say that's apt yeah because a lot of his stuff is super abstract super surreal kind of incomprehensible depending on which persona he is it's nightmare logic i think i've recommended on one of our very first episodes dr octagon and that's a cool keith persona but this album specifically that i'm gonna bring up is called first come first served by dr doom with three o's Dr. Doom is, once again, another Cool Keith alias. The reason why I'm bringing this up, because this album really falls under horrorcore and, like, abstract hip-hop. If you are going to Google, like, best horror hip-hop albums out there, it's going to be, like, Gravediggas, Dr. Doom, and Dr. Octagon, a.k.a. Cool Keith. This album is gross in all the best ways possible. So it's a concept album about a serial killer named Dr. Doom who has a fondness for cannibalism, pet rats, and Flintstones vitamins. The album (laughs) begins with him murdering Dr. Octagon, his other persona, in this weird way of, like, I guess trying to move away from that and adopting this new one. Okay, imagine, like, a guy walking down the street with a shopping cart full of severed limbs, and he's eating, like, a raw chicken thigh and drinking seven up out of a two liter and that's kind of a dr <laughs> doom song in this album yeah pretty much apartment 223 specifically and i added that on our spotify playlist is pretty fucking creepy it's like about where dr doom lives one of the critics i read when they reviewed this album said no rapper has ever imagined such disgusting apartments lurid locales with fluorescent cereal on the floor more than all the body parts and shopping carts it's the decor that puts the fake gangsta hardcore stories dr doom despises to shame on the dirty-ass terrace, bones and refrigerators, spring water and lettuce. Fuck it if you're jealous. Graham crackers with flowers around them, keep your eyes around them. Fuck dishes, dial your ambulance, I'm on a mission. Holding your shin guards and tinfoil. Warming my bread and sauerkraut while your legs boil. Ketchup and mustard, fuck voodoo. Paint on my face, looking off my roof like a shotgun Zulu. Surrounding your area for the biggest mass hysteria. Muhammad Dohemian, why you motherfuckers eat pork? I taste real humans on my fork. Apartment 223. Apartment 223 Very 
lyrics go from like these cannibalistic, crazy murder, like schizophrenic nightmare dream logic to like him also bashing kind of like the hardcore hip hop scene of being fake. And it's interesting because this album came out in 1999. It was recorded through 1998 and 99. Then it came out in May 99. Even the album artwork is a parody because he does that old school, like awful Photoshop random shit thing. You know what I'm talking about, Aaron? Yeah, like the cash money cover, yeah. Like the No Limit (laughs) Records kind of album. Yeah, like he does that on purpose, but it's like him holding a cheeseburger. And I think there might be like a cockroach in the background or something. But yeah, first come, first served. It's definitely not safe for work or children around, but it is a fucking wild horror hip hop album. It's gross. It's super nightmare fuel, nightmare logic, cannibalism mixed with, again, like you said, Flintstone vitamins. And if you want to just listen to some weird abstract hip hop in general, Cool Keith's entire discography. He has been putting out music for years and years now, like across at least two or three decades. But yeah, First Come, First Served by Dr. Doom with three O's. And then the last thing I'm going to recommend is actually a book. It is called Wonderland by Zoya Stage. Zoya Stage kind of got some acclaim for her debut book, Baby Teeth, which came out in 2018. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't okay. read Baby Teeth, but I'm going to go back and reread it now. But Baby Teeth was highly regarded in, as horror fiction. This is her follow-up to it. It wasn't as well received, but I think it was kind of screwed by like the publisher and the way they described this book. Because if you, if you look up the book itself to buy it online or you look it up in promos and stuff, I think it was New York Post said that it's Shirley Jackson meets The Shining. And I think that label really screwed this book from the get go because it's kind of nothing like that at all. Yeah. Yeah. There are light elements of The Shining because it's this family that moves way up north in New York State out in the boonies winter wilderness like out in the middle of nowhere. They like buy this big cabin out in the middle of the woods. The tree line is is very close to their backyard. There's no town within like 30 minutes of them. They're very secluded. And in that regard, it is a little bit like The Shining, like the seclusion in winter aspect. And there are light elements of like psychological horror early on that might be kind of close to like Jack Torrance going crazy, where the the direction the the book goes and really isn't like The Shining at all. And I wish they would have just described this as its own thing. It did get some backlash for that, where people like going in expecting it to be like the new Shining, and it really wasn't. Sure. I wanted to like this book more than I did. Now, granted, let me back up because I do like this book and I do recommend it. I think it is a good read. I think it's maybe 50 to 75 pages too long. I feel like this could have been cut down to maybe like 250 pages and it would have been just as effective and it wouldn't have lost any merit as the story. There is some repetitive beats to it. It's a lot of the dad losing his mind, one of the kids acting really strange, and the mom being like, well, what's going on? Could this be just us getting cabin fever? Or could this be some like spirit that may live out in the forest? You needed that setup. You need that tension, but not to this degree, I'd say. So that's my only criticism of this book. At first, some of the characters are frustrating me, especially the mother. But then like by the time I finished it, I at first, my knee-jerk response was, well, that was an okay read, but I'm not going to think about it much. Yeah. But then the book kind of sat with me. Something I do like that Zoya Stage did is that she put questions at the back of the book for like any um, book groups that want to discuss it. One of the questions was like, and I don't want to say which character this is because I don't want to give away like anything, but they bring up the question, what if this character accepted this thing as 
the magic of nature rather than this sinister force? Would that have changed the entire story? And I sat with that question. There is some horror elements throughout the book. I still say this is a horror survival story, but the actual supernatural horror isn't what the true horror is. It's kind of, did this character make a big, massive mistake that caused a lot of needless tragedy for the family that didn't necessarily need to happen? Sure. If they would have accepted this thing as something, they didn't dig for explanation. They didn't try and dig deeper. They just accepted this as a miracles of nature. Would this have turned this book from a horror story into a a modern fantasy story? Because there's a lot of elements of fantasy to this by the end of the book. And that kind of changed my entire outlook on it. So it's not a book I would recommend to everybody, but it is a book I really enjoyed, if that makes any sense. It is a little bit of a frustrating read. Like I said, it's a little too long. Some of the characters can be a little annoying, especially like the mom who is the narrator character or the point of view character. But it is worth a read and I really am interested in her other stuff because she also just put out a book recently that's also a horror novel that got critical acclaim again and then yeah Baby Teeth apparently was very well received so check out Wonderland by Zoya Stage. I am very curious to hear if anyone else has read this and what they think because hey you may go into it and not like it in the end and that's totally okay but I would like to hear like what people think. So I mean it sounds like there's at least a conversation to be had. Yeah yeah. I think I would rather that than just okay this was still just I'm, I'm done you know that's the thing Zoya Stage is such a good writer that even when the story is like really falling flat it's still interesting enough to read because she just writes so well it's like any of the movies we've discussed in the past where like this is has issues but it is made with such creative energy that there is a discussion to be had and it, it has its worth and merit as a work of fiction Okay, cool. Well, I guess let's go ahead and get started talking about this week's movie, uh, which is 1988, directed by Anthony Hickox, uh, Waxwork. It's 11.45, let's go. Imagine, if you will, an exhibit in fear. It looks a little spooky, boys. You think we should do this? A place that appeals to your deepest and darkest fantasies. Ooh, scary. Your fascination with ghosts, monsters, and the many unearthly elements of the supernatural. Welcome to the Look. Now this is killer. Enjoy. Wow, the glasses from Nutty Zombies from Hell. Lose yourself in it. Do you like a closer look? Really? But whatever you do, don't step over the rope. Thought you were too tired to join us. All right, I'm hypnotized. Hey, not so fast. Ah! Relax. Well, Grab a cup of coffee. We'll talk about it. I want out of here, Sarah. I'm serious. Getting scared. Why well, get a pretty woman in my illusion? No, no, I get a dork. It isn't real. What the hell did you kill him for? He'd have been perfect. My children live. Hit me! We still need two more! Vestron Pictures welcomes you into a new dimension in terror. Waxwork. 
Cool. So, Kelly, this was a movie that you specifically mentioned to us a while back as something yes. that you are kind of obsessed with and have liked for a very long time. So I guess tell us a little bit more about your background with this movie and why it's so special to you. I think this movie kind of shares the stage with, with Fright Night a little bit. I know Fright Night was the last time I was on here with y'all. And, and Fright Night, of course, is my favorite horror film of all time. But I, I think I've seen Waxwork probably as many times, if not more, honestly, if not more, than I've seen Fright Night. You ever had something that's so good that like you kind of want to, you know, like for instance, like Lord of the Rings. Savor it. Yeah. Exactly. Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'll watch maybe, you know, the extended cuts once every two years, three years, maybe. I can't do it every year because, you know, it's it's almost like it's too close in a way. But that's how I feel about Fright Night. But Waxwork, there's something about the fun of Waxwork more than anything. It's almost like being on, and I'll be honest, I'm not a roller coaster guy. I'm not a ride guy, really. But it's almost like being on a ride. You you know what I mean? That you just like yeah. that ride that you really, really enjoy. And I guess you could say that about a lot of films. But I remember growing up as a youth in Detroit. So we had what was called WGN Superstation. But what was cool is like I remember I would play sick on certain days. My mom was a single mom raising five kids. In some cases, more would be involved because, you know, I'm the baby of 15. But like mom was worried about all this other stuff. And I'd be like, oh, I'm sick. <laughs> so I would stay home <laughs> and me playing like it's I don't guess it's not really hooky, but I was faking. But that yeah. involved me staying home. And at a certain time without fail on those weekdays, WGN would play just older like horror films. Children of the Corn. I don't know if y'all remember how. Ding dong, you're dead. Yes. The okay. Steve Miner one. Yes. Yep. They play house a lot, but they would play waxwork. I just remember, I can still think about it the first time I watched waxwork and that, you know, just like I love that opening crane shot in Fright Night, the opening, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, a shot on sticks. It's a static shot, but like with the music starting and then coming into this room and, and you hear the crash of the guy stealing all of these artifacts and then you get a guy who gets thrown into a fucking fireplace. What face into the fire, yeah. Yeah, what a fucking wild beginning to this movie too. I, I was laughing so hard at that. <laughs> <laughs> I think WGN, when you talk about edits, like this is 90s, like they didn't fucking care. So I'm getting all of this and I loved it. Loved it, loved it. But I, I think it's just, <laughs> it's something that stuck with me and just the, the concept of, you know, stepping into, I always love, always, always love, and I think I've talked to y'all about this when we talked about Fright Night. I think good stories and good cinema, they have invisible characters. And I think locations can be as much of a character as anything else. And being able to step into so many different realms that when we think about the horror genre, it's just a lot of the like the creative mastery of some of the greatest characters. So, you know, the mummy or the wolfman or zombies. Like to me, the, the zombie one always spoke to me just because, you know, George Romero's original, like Night of the Living Dead was always a, a classic. But I think I told y'all, like, I really think that original Night of Living Dead was probably one of the first films that I'd ever seen that I, like, remember my real father, my biological father, like, sitting me down, not knowing what the fuck I was watching and just being, like, enamored. And then he, yeah. you know, he left me there and went off and did whatever he did. I'm like, fuck you. I'm watching this movie, bro. So I always go back to that. And like seeing that those moments in different movies, but specifically like seeing it in Waxwork, but having a movie that covers so many of my favorites, you know? And it's just a feel. It really is just a feel. It's got that film look to it, you know, very grainy, like high grain. Uh, yeah. Even if you got the new collector's edition, 
and Aaron, you can definitely like fact check me on this, but Waxwork originally was 4.3. When Vestron re-released it, that was the first time it ever been in widescreen, I believe. I think since it came out, yeah, like it was only ever in 4.3 because, you know, VHS TV. 100%. Yeah. And I get what you're saying too, because this movie, and I'm not saying this in a derogatory way because I appreciate it. I like the handmade quality of stuff like this. Yeah. You can yeah. smell the spray paint and the plywood coming off the set. And there are definitely times where like it's a little creaky and hokey, but I like that handmade quality. It felt almost like a, a college level play in some scenes, yeah. but like it actually kind of worked really well with this type of movie. Before I like spoil any parts of, or any of us spoil parts of this movie, um, it's not scary. Um, it's not. It's not <laughs> yeah, yeah. super it's scary. It's a fun horror movie. It's even less scary than Fright Night. Yeah. Um, but this is, would be a fantastic one for horror newbies to watch, especially if you want to watch something a little uh, strange, but also a lot of fun. First point I wanted to make, Kelly, is there is a lot of similar energy of this movie to Fright Night. And I think it's interesting that you picked these back to back because I could see how one could draw a line to each other. And the big one to me is the idea of something strange happening in suburbia. In this case, it's a college level guy, but like he's still sort of like a kid, you could say, kind of like Boy Who Cried Wolf. And like him and his friends are going to go figure out this mystery. He's grown, but he's still, a, he's a man child. Right? Yeah, he's yeah. like 1920. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like to the point where like there is that detective who does finally like feel like oh shit there is something weird going on here but it's a little too little too late so it is kind of up to these kids to like figure out what's going on with this waxwork museum so there's that the second thing is and I mean this kind of like Aaron was saying in terms of production quality also from the writing standpoint and I mean this in the best way possible because like no other movie would this work but it works so well for waxwork the general plot the big things this feels like a horror movie that was written by a 10 year old and what I mean is okay so you have this guy he has this waxwork museum it's haunted, but maybe it's not haunted. Also, he made a deal with Satan, so he's kind of immortal, but not really. Also, like you have to push people into the waxwork and they get transported to another dimension. That is the waxwork thing. He has to kill like six people by this time to like dot, dot, dot start the apocalypse and bring the antichrist yeah. it's interesting how the movie does ramp up so quick yeah. because the initial like okay we're gonna go there's gonna be the vignettes you see all the little scenes and we lose two of our friends to it what happened but then from there yeah things just go bananas and you find yeah. out about the like the rules society and just like, yeah. all, the, like all the rules like, all the rules of this world are wild yeah all the rules to the waxwork and like the summoning ritual again it feels like a 10 year old wrote the horror plot but like in in the best way possible. And that's all my favorite stuff about this is because yeah. if it was just the general premise of go into these different vignettes, cool. We get to play around with kind of all the monsters. Every genre, we get to yeah. Play around with like all the styles, right? But it kind of takes it to that next level by introducing all these very weirdly specific rules. Yeah. Yeah. And so there was that aspect that I really appreciated. Kelly, you already and Aaron just now, y'all both touched on this, but like it was great to see like this movie also being in homage to monster movies just in general. It was fantastic to see the Wolfman make an appearance again. So fresh off of our werewolf centric Halloween that we did this past October. Spoiler alert towards the very end of the movie. One of the best creature kills I think I've ever seen in any movie period. That guy fucking grabbing Dracula bat out of the air, <laughs> holding it in his hand, putting a revolver right up to the bat's face and blowing its head off. Are you kidding me? That was fucking fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, that shit's great. Uh, that whole battle scene at the end, again, going back to our earlier conversation, it's a little hampered by the fact that the production on this movie was a little bit rough. Dude, it felt like early Sam Raimi, that battle scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just all the gimmicks and, like, all the camera stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They had to, like, way, way, way cram at the last minute because the production was getting, like, shut the fuck down. We are out of money. So that entire battle scene went from, like, we're gonna make this huge climax and it's gonna take us three weeks to film it to, like... We got to get everything by the end of the day, guys. (laughs) Like, go, 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 right? So, you know, it has a little bit of that kind of rushed, knock this shit out kind of feel. But like you said, for the amount of camera setups and gimmicks and just all that stuff that they fit in, it's kind of wild that they pulled it off as well as they did. And just how fun it is. I love the entire idea of the Deus Ex geriatrics that show up, right? Yeah. And I love Sir Wilfred's battle chair that he has. Like, that shit's great. He gets the best death, too. I mean, besides the bat getting caught and gets head blown off by a revolver. He gets fucking, like, ripped apart by the werewolf. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too, like, kind of going back to weird kid logic for horror. It's supposed to resurrect the 15 worst people who have ever existed, and you'd be thinking, like, okay, Adolf Hitler, like, no, 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 it's a vampire, a werewolf, I guess they were real, and then the Marquise de Sade? Yeah. (laughs) There's even a Zulu prince. Yeah. (laughs) axe man a man with axe uh these are the ones that i wrote down because i was just like i'm not sure this one is dr alien the plant from little shop of horrors yeah baby monster just a baby baby. that is a monster (laughs) and zombies i guess zombies collectively count as one of the most evil people yep yeah apparently marquis de sad though trumps hitler By the way, the guy that plays the Marquis de Sade, J. Kenneth Campbell, he has big Billy Drago energy. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He's got that, like, (laughs) sleazeball kind of thing through the entire movie. Well, and that's that's a wild thing. This almost felt like it could be a kinder trauma movie up until you get to the massive amount of gore during the vampire stuff and then the, anything with the Marquis de Sade. That gets adult and real real quick. Well, the Marquis de Sade stuff does, yeah. And that yeah. gets weird in a BDSM way, but as much as we were like, this movie's not scary, it's a lot of fun. To Kelly's point, we got WGM out of Chicago, so yes, ab- absolutely, I know that channel. Definitely watch Chuck Russell's The Blob and lots of <laughs> other like yeah. good, weird, late 80s shit on there, right? The werewolf scene was like, okay, this is kind of scary when I was like seeing it, you know, six, seven years old. Just the like weirdness of fucking uh, Danny Ashford being like still stuck midway transformation even after he gets killed. Yeah, that was a little creepy. Going back to our like whole month of Halloween werewolf shit, typically what happens is, you know, you either stay a werewolf when you're killed as a werewolf or you revert back to human, right? And he stays kind of in the middle, mid transformation. That kind of freaked me out as a kid and then immediately move it into the vampire one. None of the vampire stuff freaked me out. I knew what vampires were. I've seen vampire movies. What freaked me out was the entire giant fucking bowl of blood cereal, yeah. right? You Just find out like his leg later, as yeah. Raw people beating blood, yeah. yeah. That kind of threw me for a loop a little bit when I was a kid. They were like very cannibalistic vampires. It wasn't just yes. like drinking blood. It was eating the meat of people. Yeah. And to that point, going back to the werewolf scene, I mean, even now when I was watching it, there was a little bit of a creepy nature to it. Of He didn't know what the fuck he walked into. He got attacked by the werewolf, got bit, the werewolf got killed, but then like he starts transforming, has no idea what's going on 
on begging this guy for help and the guy's like well too late for you and then murders him halfway transformed the thing that is a little unnerving is like when these people die in those alternate realities their body shows up now in like the waxwork scene itself that's a little haunting yeah this was something that was edited out of the tv version i saw when i was a kid that watching it later i was like oh shit in that same werewolf scene the werewolf ripping yeah (laughs) so good which that guy did not help at all. Like, wasn't no. it his dad just watching? And he just didn't fucking help at all and then waited till he was ripped in half before he, like, did something about <laughs> I do like, too, the, like, off-kilter aspect of it and just not being sure, like, what's happening. Dana Ashbrook immediately jumping to the conclusion of, oh... You guys dosed me. Again. <laughs> right? Like, just his immediate assumption of, oh, somebody fucking got me bad. <laughs> but yeah, like, there's something about kind of that immediate facing your fears quality. Like, if we're talking about, like, what does this movie really get at as far as our fears and how does it work for the audience? Just the overall idea that horror is imaginary and fear is only in our minds, right? And it's the same thing, like, when you go to a waxwork museum in real life. I remember going going to one with my parents when I was really young. I can't remember what city we were in. We were on vacation in some major city and they had a very big, well-known wax museum and there was a, like, scary horror section. And I wanted to go so fucking bad. I was obsessed with the idea of what is in that creepy section? My mom went and she kind of came out the other side a few minutes later and was just like, whatever. It, You know, it was just serial killers and monsters and shit. And I was like, but I want to see it. I want to see it so bad, right? <laughs> and just having that obsession in my head and wondering like, what is it? And so this is kind of the same thing where like you see the tableau and it's made to be this horrific thing in front of you. But you know it's fake. Whatever. I can touch it. I can walk in there and like flick the guy in the head and it's not going to be that big of a deal. So the fact that this movie's turning that on its head and saying, haha, no gotcha. Not only is it real, you're in it now is fun, right? Like that's a great way to like prey on the audience's fear because it kind of breaks that, what, I guess the fifth wall where like the fourth wall is broken for the characters in the movie. Yeah. And just the idea that the fourth wall could be broken for us, right? Like what if the movie turns out to be, you know, real? To give you all uh, an idea, Kelly, like what I thought going into this movie is I thought it was a bunch of teenagers getting trapped in a waxwork museum, which I love, by the way, how like they at the beginning are like, oh, yeah, waxwork. These are just normal everyday things in 1988 or whatever this is. Like, <laughs> in the summer. I, yeah, I think I've only known known about like one or two waxworks my entire life. They're just not a thing anymore. Like Madame Tussauds is like the only one I can name off the top of my head. But Kelly, when, when you pitched this movie, what I thought I was getting into is a bunch of teenagers going to waxwork. They get trapped inside in the middle of the night and... And all the things come to life and are picking them off one by one, or one of them is come to life and picking off one by one or whatever. I thought I was right on the money at first because when they first walk into the waxwork, and I thought it was like being done intentionally, but then I realized this is kind of part of like the shoestring like production parts. A lot of the figures in the displays are totally moving. Oh, they're like, blinking. Like, yeah, they're blinking like, oh, and yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like yeah, swaying yeah. and breathing. Like the actors playing those figures are just swaying and breathing and stuff. It had to have been intentional as kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke. Well, it's also interesting, too, because the tableaus are all at least genuinely intriguing in their premises. Despite how awkward they are of, okay, this person's clearly just not standing still. 
they're all kind of interesting, at least. Like, the weird invisible man guy, like, making a woman, like, swallow gasoline. Like, <laughs> what's going on this scene, yeah. right? Which makes me think, damn, whichever victim that was, like, that would have been a horrible, like, portal yeah. to walk into. But the thing that, like, I thought, because they even show that one guy who is, like, wearing kind of human skin, one of the axe guys, basically. Like, there's the lumberjack axe guy, but then there's this slasher axe guy who's, like, wearing a human skin mask. And I thought he was going to be the one that, like, comes to life or one of the ones that came life to like kill them and like it would be kind of a, like a slasher movie but when Dane Ashbrook walks through a portal I was like what the fuck did <laughs> Kelly like, suggest to this yeah this shit's good and I think the movie does a good job of kind of taking its time to get set up before it immediately kind of jumps in but it does so in kind of weird ways you know our dumb little opening joke is the scene where we first kind of meet the Zach Galligan character who's clearly a rich kid in his giant mansion no real worries necessarily and that's hires the help to write his paper <laughs> yeah and that's kind of a wild swing for a movie to be like cool we're gonna make the main character a rich douchey kid that you absolutely are not gonna like and then we're gonna try to make it out like how tough a life the rich kid has right oh it's so hard being him that's a weird fucking swing right that's a weird take to be like this is your main character audience hope you enjoy and sympathize with him sure you know whatever and then also to like immediately introduce David Warner right off the bat. You know, that's great setting to, like, have him appear fairly early, seemingly dressed as Willy Wonka's psychotic brother 100%. when they first beat him. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's just weird shit like, you know, I like them all kind of hanging out. Is this a high school? Is this a college? I don't think it's ever made clear, but I like them kind of breakfast club style hanging out on the football field, which, by the way, that fucking player decking that guy from the other team at the end of the football montage just wham and then it cutting away from that kind of cracked me up <laughs> i didn't remember that scene yeah the camera really focused on that too <laughs> yeah we get to kind of you know meet the characters and learn what makes them tick and see kind of where their friction is and kind of see how they interact because obviously that's going to kind of come back a little bit later i definitely love old girl that played china her line i do what i want when i want dig it or fuck off that was a great that line. That was a good line. But you're kind of getting to know all those characters a little bit before they start getting knocked off. One of my favorite parts with her is that entire transformation, like the entire like movie, including her, goes through when it shifts from like the Waxwork Museum into the vampire reality. Yeah, it becomes more like ethereal and Baroque in its styling. Yeah. Yeah, and like sexy, but also horrifying. Like, because when Dana Ashbrook falls into like the werewolf one, He's still like very much like Dana Ashbrook. Yuck, yuck. Where's my vision of being on the beach with babes in bikinis? And then like he gets taken out by a werewolf. But like she almost transforms with the reality. Yeah. Deborah Foreman certainly does as well when she ends up in the one with the Marquis de Sade. Yeah. And I thought that was really almost felt like some of these whack works displays were more thought out or more complete than the others were um, because even like the zombie one like it just seems like the person stays who they are 
park and they're just attacked by zombies. I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. I don't know if that was like budgetary reasons because the vampire one really felt like it was almost its own separate mini movie within this movie, whereas the others didn't quite feel like that. It's one of the things where like I I wonder how much in sequence shooting they did for this because again, the entire final battle sequence was kind of cut short because they like were having the production shut down and they were out of money. Because if you go back and look at the vampire scene, like you said, that scene gets... You know, it's not just big in the sense that it's expansive, but it's big in the sense that it has really major special effects gags in it. Like, the guy on the slab with the carved up leg, the exploding head, and the fucking champagne bottle gag. Like, all that shit is great, and it's like rapid fire all happening. And I wonder, you know, had the production not been shut down, how much more of that level would we have gotten gotten at the last battle? Let me ask you this specifically, Kelly, because you have experience and passion for filmmaking this was something i admit i didn't try and pay attention to the first watch this was going to be something i was planning on doing on my second watch but i just never got the chance to did each one of those to you feel like they were in the waxwork and then when they were in a different reality i I know with the vampire one we've talked about how different that is but did it feel like the director was trying to really almost change his style even in each of those scenes would you say definitely no no no. and i also i think a testament to anthony hickox directing because you you know he did he did part two is it is it lost in time aaron i forget the i think it's lost in time and that one really really oh it goes it amps it it amps it it definitely amps it up but i think he did a hellraiser as well i think he did three hell on earth yeah yeah but i've been i've always been a fan of him but i think you know y'all mentioned the writing and the script the movie watching it now it almost feels like he had those beats those specific set pieces and then he just kind of weaved story around the set pieces but i think he did going into production try and really make it each one as different as as it could be but each one we go and i think that's the fun of it whether it's when the guy steps into the the woods and he's like okay what did someone put acid in my drink again and then when we get into the the vampire one each one was just done i thought so well because to me that's the greatest testament of waxwork is it really does feel like so many different horror films wrapped into one yeah it's almost like an anthology but without like the parts of an anthology that kind of limit anthology series yeah i feel like a lot of the anthology movies focus first on like each short movie and then second on like what's that called aaron where it's the one story happening in the background of all the The anthologies the wraparound this feels like no they focused more on the actual overall film of the plot of waxwork but they added in these short scenes that are like almost little mini horror movies but it still worked yeah because i mean there's the whole subplot with the fucking rough around the edges cop who has nine styrofoam coffee cups on his desk right <laughs> and there's all the like subplot of deborah foreman who, who really just wants to fuck at the end of the day like let's be real like that's her whole subplot but her and like galligan's relationship back and forth that's totally a thing and then obviously like all the stuff with sir wilfred and the secret society and what david warner's ultimate plan is right like there's all these little subplots that kind of come together in a very tight way that normally would be kind of messy right well, and then the murdered grand grandfather turning out to be like the grandfather of the main character yeah like it all comes back around in kind of a tight way which to hickox's credit he grew up in the industry to a degree or another like he was always surrounded by it at least like i had no idea that his mother's ann coates she was the editor of lawrence of arabia and murder on the orient express 
Elephant Man. I didn't and know that. Out of sight, she's been an editor for decades, and I had no idea that she was his mother, right? So he's grown up with film constantly around him, you know, so he's probably always had a lot of this stewing in the back of his mind to one degree or another. But it's interesting, like you said, just the way that he kind of takes all those different elements and puts them together in a cohesive way, because this could be a much messier movie. You know, there's still little, like, things... Sir Wilfred's math is kind of wild, let's be real. (laughs) It seriously is some, like, 2021 COVID-19, uh, Biden, 47th <laughs> president, 46th president, COVID-19, um, 666 the devil. It all fits together. <laughs> like, it's kind of that same weird math, right? Like, what's the significance of three, right? I get that 18 divided by three is three sixes, 666, but what's the significance of three, right? You could easily divide 18 by two and nine, right? Fuck, I forgot about that part of the movie. Now it's all coming back to me. <laughs> yeah, so like that kind of cracked me up, but it's one of the things that's just like, don't worry about it don't worry about it. just trust me evil's happening right it, it's kind of the same logic and i love it for that but i really fucking love even more than i love the entire notion of we're gonna resurrect these evil people we're gonna resurrect these evil people by using these cursed fucking items that belonged to each of them that's something that i've mentioned on the show before i love the entire idea of a fucking cursed heirloom yeah. Yeah. that has some evil to it that you reawaken i will go on record and say i'm not the biggest Amityville fan, but my favorite Amityville movies are all the fucking stupid sequels that are like, it's a cursed lamp. (laughs) This is a cursed clock. (laughs) Right? Like, those are kind of my favorite of those, but I I do like how that plays into this movie as well, in terms of the overall plan. Yeah. And and yeah, like like we're saying, I I love the aesthetic switch, especially the the most obvious one is when it switches to black and white for the zombie scene. Yeah. As, like you said, an homage to Romero specifically. And even more so in the second movie. I know I mentioned this way, way back because I watched both of these when I got the Blu-ray and I had never seen two. And that one goes even, even further with, oh, cool. Now we're in space (laughs) on a spaceship. But the entire aesthetic changes to Ridley Scott's Alien. It immediately changes to that. I was about to say, if they didn't do Alien, I would have been mad. And there is like a xenomorph monster alien thing chasing them. And there's steam and leaky pipes and neon lights and shit. And then it immediately changes to like a black and white, again, Shirley Jackson, like you mentioned earlier, kind of haunted house thing with Bruce Campbell. And he's doing his best. Oh, shucks, Darla, 1950s (laughs) kind of thing, right? So the second movie's a lot of fun. It's definitely more fantasy than it is horror, even though it does still do a lot of horror tableaus. But it's a lot of fun as well, especially if you really dug the idea of the style of the filmmaking changing with each kind of subgenre story. Yeah, and like, again, I I just felt like overall this movie at some points had some early Evil Dead energy to it. Even like Army of Darkness energy at the very like end with the battle scene. Yeah. Just some goofiness to this kind of otherwise over the top big climatic scene. I think the only difference is that they saved all the VFX budget for the the house fire at the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the and the hand crawling out. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it is yeah. very impressive too that So again, the entire battle scene had to be shot in one working day. That's crazy. Because the Bond That's company insane. was putting pressure on the production since they were down to like the last few dollars that they had. Oh, and the Teamsters were like fucking harassing the production too because it was a non-union production. But for all 
all the camera setups and all the gags and fire stunts. There were a shit ton of really dangerous fire stunts in this movie. And that, Lord knows, takes a lot of time and a lot of prep. So if we're talking about the knocking out that entire sequence in one day, that's fucking impressive. It really is. And yes, the like dirty hairy light as the guy blows the fucking headset off is always the best. (laughs) Something I did want to talk about with you guys that I felt was... Not out of place, but very different from the tone. And, and we kind of alluded to this earlier, but very different from the tone of this movie. At least it felt like to me, the Marquis de Sade scenes. Because like, if we want to talk about real life horror shit, that could be like kind of triggering a little bit for certain people, I feel like. Because yeah. it is it is basically torture porn, kind of literally. You're not seeing any nudity, but like it is, you know, women getting whipped to death, which fuck, that's kind of a brutal way to die. Like, I would rather get ripped apart by the werewolf than like get chained up and be whipped to death for the sexual pleasure of a bunch of French aristocrats. When you think about it, that's fucked up. And that's kind of where the movie takes that turn for me, like besides the gore and all that. But that's where the movie from takes a like turn from being to like actually dark. Yeah, real adult. And I wouldn't now show this to a kid. What were your thoughts about that? Like, it wasn't until I got older where I, you know, fully like understood kind of what was going on, you know, in scripts or just narrative, there will always be certain plot devices, right? I always in my mind, I figured that Anthony Hickox, I forget the girl's name, but never was implying that that character was going to die. You know, it was was just that she was finding the pleasure that she had never had in real life. But that was also the plot device was his doorway for Zach's character to get in. Because, you know, because if you think about it, that's the first time in the film when he leaves Zombieland. You know, he's like, this isn't real. I don't believe this. You know, and then he jumps out. Like when he jumps into the Marquis de Sai one, you know, and he gets into that little scuffle with the dude at the door, you know, which is always so, so like cheesy to me, but fucking loved it. But yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things where like it is, it's definitely touching and can, you know, possibly touch certain sensibilities, you know, and of course I can't speak for him and I haven't seen anything of him speaking on it, but I think he knew like this is going to be the one that we're going to take just to the tip. And then it's almost like that, not really deus ex machina where like the character, the end, you know, the heroes come and saves the girl for the first time that we've never seen but saves her in a way that at first you're like oh fuck she doesn't want to leave now so that touches on like you know stockholm syndrome and shit like that so like you said it really is touching on you know different things that the film really hadn't touched on before but i don't know i always looked at it at especially as i got a little older it's like okay all the other ones you know where the souls are intact and they're stuck they're literally frozen you know we, we stop at a certain point with each one up to that point where they literally are frozen in that actual exhibit, I think that was kind of him telling the audiences, yes, this could have went further, but you know, like we we are stopping at a certain point. The greatest thing is like having these open conversations is now I am thinking about it in a different way that I've, you know, I haven't thought about. Yeah, that whole aspect of the movie, I was trying to like, I don't I don't necessarily would say it aged poorly or anything like that. I mean, it's just totally different. Yeah, it's the very definitely totally different. Like whiplash, yeah. And like it, it establishes Desaad as a true real fuck up villain yeah you could show the entire movie to a 10 year old except maybe that, that sequence. Part. yeah in some ways if you really think about it he was more powerful in that moment than uh i forget the guy's name but the the dude from secret of the ooze <laughs> david warner yeah then, then david warner <laughs> yeah. like that's what was really cool but no i agree with y'all 100 is they really made the marquee out to be really this this terrible fucking person yeah, who had the who ultimate had, 
ultimate villain. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. So like, I, I mean, I joked earlier about how like, oh, well, why isn't Hitler among this? And we have this guy, but like uh, historically, I don't know much about his history. I have, I've never really read into it too much. But at least, in, let's say in the universe of this movie, like now you understand how this is one of the like worst people in history to ever live. This movie does a great job of really establishing that. Yeah, that's kind of where the tonal whiplash really hits. And that's honestly where it could be triggering to some people, especially like ideas of non-consent and, you know, BDSM torture. That's some real, real rough shit there on top of like what's otherwise kind of a crazy fucking movie. Kind of talking too about like stuff that's just there, not really explained too well, but just interesting set pieces that kind of world build on its own. I love how he has like the two servants and one is the little person and one is the really, really tall guy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's established that the little person is kind of like the head servant, the head guy uh, next to He's uh, the force, yeah. And then you have this big, really tall guy who's like the muscle but acts almost like, like a, a child, child sometimes. Yeah, 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 yeah. By the way, the, the little person an actor is Mahali Masaros. He's been in a shit ton of stuff, but the main thing that I think of every time I see him is Big Top Pee Wee. He's in Big Top. Yes, he's like one of the circus performers in that. He's fucking got some spicy attitude in it, constantly <laughs> just like just haranguing Pee Wee Herman for like doing dumb shit. It's great. Hey, don't just hand out. Yeah, but like I love how like they're in this movie, they're part of this evil guy's plan. They help him out and they're his servants, but they're never explained. <laughs> like, like not at all. And uh, I do love his death specifically. <laughs> she just picks him up and throws him into the Seymour plant <laughs> yeah. and the plant yeah. even goes, feed me more or something like that. <laughs> like it's just like, oh shit, they, uh, they were able to get away with that, huh? Yeah, it was good shit. A couple of other like goofy things that I kind of wrote down that I guess we don't have to talk about necessarily, but the scene where he's at the phone booth at two in the fucking morning. Who is this fucking nerd just hanging out at the phone booth playing the harmonica? harmonica <laughs> yes. He is like, dude, he is like the condom salesman. Ted Raimi in Blood Rage. Like, what is yeah. this story and why is he there? Yeah. What secrets does he know? I thought he was going to be like a spy for Warner or something. I thought there was a plot reason for that, but no. Yeah. There is no the camera would slowly zoom in as Zach Galligan walks away from the booth and it would zoom in on that guy as he turns around and like takes off his glasses and stares yeah i love too the egypt scene with the mummy right which that's a fucking gnarly mummy i love the mummy in this that was a cool scene but that scene the theme to swan lake is playing and that's a wild take on like i don't know what's a fucking song we could put in here that sounds like it would be in egypt uh i don't know fucking uh swan lake thing put swan lake thing in here <laughs> and just sure good enough because now like you know between the mummy and Prince of Egypt and all these other movies like we kind of know what Egypt in air quotes sounds like right yeah. but yeah the Swan Lake theme kind of cracked me up well this is like because we always bring up Brendan Fraser's The Mummy like the scariest parts of Brendan Fraser's The Mummy are like how people die and the idea of like how they are dying yeah. like in the dark is fucking terrifying no matter how goofy you can make a mummy out to be the way the guy dies is he gets fucking buried alive basically in a mummy's tomb yeah. and like him and the girl in that scene just get pushed in and are grabbed from behind and held in place by another mummy and then just sealed away. And the idea that no matter how goofy you make a mummy or the curse of the mummy kind of 
trope, it's still one of the more sinister deaths, right? Because like you're basically buried my alive. My claustrophobic ass hates it. Yeah. It immediately subconsciously makes me like hold my breath the entire time. I'm just like, no, stop. So yeah, that was definitely a good death scene for sure. Something that adds to like this scariness factor and like what makes it kind of scary is in the mummy there's a soul behind the mummy's face we know Imhotep's story like we know what he wants we know this we know that with this thing and I know it's such a quick almost vignette like it's so fast but like black eyes you know what I mean like we don't know we don't know what the fuck this dude wants and and honestly like he doesn't fucking care if we know what he wants to me that's what was a lot scarier even watching it now like of course I'm not scared but I'm like you can't reason with this mummy yeah, yeah. yeah that's a pimp ass mummy like, <laughs> yeah. like uh, and it's gonna keep coming at you too like I mean granted I was laughing because it's like just keep running circles around the room but like <laughs> at the end of the day it's not going to stop like not it's just all. going to yeah. keep coming it's like the thing from It Follows or Michael Myers even yeah yeah I think it's safe to say that a uh, waxwork man in air quotes is dead as fuck at the end of this movie (laughs) the like fall into the vat of the hot wax was pretty rad and seeing oh well his face is also peeling apart so he's also like some kind of weird abomination you know like he was never actually living to begin with dot 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 that's always a great detail when that turns out to be the case it's very similar I guess this might be a slightly spoiler but nobody can watch this fucking movie right now unfortunately so it doesn't matter but um Necronomicon Book of the Dead that anthology there is a segment where David Warner plays a very similar character to this who also kind of turns out is not what he seems is I guess all I'll say so it reminded me a lot of that as well and of course the end credits smash to the Leslie Gore song is a pretty great high energy way to end the movie and I, I always enjoy that in general when fun horror movies like this end with an upbeat credit song that kind of gets you hyped to have finished the movie and you know walking out of the theater or whatever that's a great ending credit song uh, and it's kind of funny I actually have it playing on in the background but one thing I'm I'm thinking about i think about it and i forget it and i it always catches me when i'm in the midst of watching it when we talk about the mise-en-scene of a, of a film and talking about coverage and things like that this is a movie that was done in a lot of medium to wide shots the entire film and i think it anthony's maybe like his approach was i have a lot to show you know like he wanted to to show as much as he could in the frame and like that was something that unconsciously i thought about as a kid i just remember it being like overload you know like data overload like man i'm getting so much oh what's this what's that you know even when we're in the classroom it's these super fucking wide shots or they're just even pretty wide mediums very very little use of like close or super close but i thought that it worked so well for this film being a movie where you literally are taking so much in and now i I guess that was something that for me it's it's like i won't say playing a game but it's you know revisiting something and finding something new every time you watch it you know and there's the fun yeah. factor which i think we've used the word fun a lot you know on this podcast but like the fun factor of like every time i watch it i know i'm getting something new out of it waxwork really is and will always be one of those movies that i'll never stop revisiting yeah it's a comfort food movie yeah it, it really is and because it's so packed full of all these neat little things be them like plot points or the museum itself there's like you said every time you watch there's a new detail you can pick up on yeah like i think that's a great point 
While it's on my mind, I figured we should probably, before we wrap up, we've talked about people here and there throughout like the director, Anthony Hickox and everything, but let's talk about their credits, specifically their horror genre credits, starting with Hickox, because I don't know this director at all. Waxwork is probably the first movie I've ever seen by him. Like we mentioned earlier, this was his debut. He had been working in film doing other roles before this, but then he went on to do the second movie. He also did the third Hellraiser movie. His second movie, in between the two Waxworks movies, was actually Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat, which was that vampire western movie that I told you about recently, which Vestron also just put it out on Blu-ray. He did Warlock, The Armageddon, which I think is like the second Warlock movie. Uh, and from there, he's just kind of done a lot of low-budget stuff in TV. You know, he's, he doesn't have a ton, a ton of credits necessarily, but he's still working. I mean, he just put out a movie this past year year is hellraiser 3 considered a decent sequel to it is fun yeah i I will say that i can definitely do the first four hellraisers before they start just being like direct to video and his is just it's ridiculous because pinhead is stuck in a pillar like literally a fucking pillar that's like an art piece and this like douchey (laughs) uh, nightclub guy like buys it as an art piece and puts it up in his apartment and then of course pinhead's stuck in it and is just like free me feed me souls and he's just dragging people back and sacrificing it to this weird art pillar until surprise you know pinhead comes out of it and then it's just pinhead wreaking hell on everything and going to this nightclub and turning other people into cinnabites so like the dj gets turned into a cinnabite that shoots CDs. fucking cds out of his mouth <laughs> so he's and the one who does the cd cinnabite yeah okay. he did the yes. cd cinnabite right. cool, cool. it's definitely like fun and goofy it's it's nowhere near as dark and dramatic and serious as the first two movies. Right. But it's it's fun for sure. What about the Warlock sequel? I have not seen that Warlock one yet. I have the Vestron Warlock set. I just haven't had time to watch the sequels. I've seen the first one. The first one's fun, but I've not seen any of the other ones from that series. I'm trying to remember because I used to watch the Warlocks all the time. And if I don't think I'm spoiling anything, but there was it will never leave my mind just because of how fucking crazy it was watching this shit as a kid. And I don't think it was warlock one i think it may have been two or three but it's basically where ah i just i'm having like remnants of memory but where like she literally births julian sands and then he pulls her fucking (laughs) scalp off and her scalp is a map I don't remember this at all, but now I'm kind of intrigued to like watch the rest of these fucking movies. See, I don't think it was one because one, because I think one was 80s, right? Late 80s or no? Or super early 90s? I think it was like 1990, possibly. Okay, like um, like literally right there. Yeah, because Armageddon was 93. No, Warlock, Warlock was 89. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just remember Warlock having this very like 80s feel to it. Like, you know, it's this guttural thing. Like, you know, uh, 80s horror film from a 90s horror film you know if you've been watching horror long enough like we all have and that's why i don't think it was warlock one but i just remember it was some some woman and i don't remember what happens to where and it's just a scene so i'm not giving y'all any context really at all so yeah that's what i'll never forget about warlock it was on vhs i remember it was in my my biological father's collection of horror films and i popped it in one day but literally she fucking births julian sands she births the warlock (laughs) 
And then he fucking like scalps her and on her scalp is a map of some sort. That's what he needs. I'll never forget that scene. If we talk about just some of the most fucked up scenes in horror history that I'll never forget, that definitely is in the top 10. Like what the fuck is going on? And, it, and what's weird though is she's not pregnant and then she's pregnant. She did like this, this horror. So Kelly, I did a quick wiki and like looked at the plot synopsis. It's Warlock Armageddon. It's, it is Armageddon. Okay. 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 It's Cox. Yeah. You're, you were dead on the money. That's exactly what happens. And bro, like I'll, I, I, just because we're talking about Warlock for a second, I'll never fucking forget that scene. This falls in, but do you remember the movie? I think it was Sleepwalkers. It was the mother and son and they were cats. Yes. I put those together because like there's in my life, you know, first viewing, there are certain films that I just watched, you know, in the same like kind of breath. And I remember Sleepwalkers, I guess that Warlock. I watched that one before I watched the first one, Hellraiser <laughs> 3. But but yeah, I'll never forget that fucking birthing scene. So I guess we win. I'm sorry if I spoiled anything, but it's fucking horror glory, man. It, it's crazy. <laughs> that might be my next chunk of stuff to watch. Because like I mentioned, I have the Vestron Warlock collection. I need to pick that and up. And I've only ever seen the first movie in that yeah. series. So I think I will definitely give those a try. And looking at the cast of Warlock Armageddon, the one that Hickox directed, guess what? Zach Galligan is back. Mahali Maceros is back in this one as well. There's like a weird chunk of people in this. So yeah, I'm definitely going to check that out and might report back on that for our next episode if awesome. I have time. Awesome. Yeah. But yeah, Anthony Hickox did those movies. I mean, it was just that early chunk of horror stuff. Waxwork, Sundown, The Vampire in Retreat, Waxwork 2, Hellraiser 3, Warlock Armageddon. He did this other one called Full Eclipse that I think I mentioned a while back. That is a TV movie starring Mario Van Peebles. There's a black ops team that takes care of fucking crime. And they live on the edge because they're all werewolves. Hell yeah. It's just that whole thing of, you know, Mario Van Peebles gets brought into this wild group of just hard asses who are all actually werewolf soldiers. I remember watching that when I was a kid and I have not been able to dig it back up since then. But that's one that I would like to check out again, for sure. And I mean, beyond that, you know, the cast is pretty straightforward. Obviously, Zach Galligan's been in Gremlins, and he's been in a lot of horror stuff in the last few years, including Hatchet 3 that our friend Nathan worked on. Dana Ashbrook, obviously, was in Twin Peaks. I don't know that Deborah Foreman, like, did a whole lot of other horror stuff outside of this. And, um, ah, damn it. What was the other one she was in? April Fool's Day. She was in April Fool's Day before this one. Oh, well, she was also in this other weird movie called Destroyer. (laughs) But that's kind of about it for her as far as horror is concerned. David Warner, I think, is the main one. You know, David Warner, obviously, like, the waxwork man. He is one of those that-guy actors that you have yeah, seen. he really is. so much fucking shit. Literally, Star Trek, Tron, In the Mouth of Madness, Planet of the Apes, Titanic, Scream 2, just so much wild shit. The Ice Cream Man. <laughs> I mentioned uh, Necronomicon, Book of the Dead earlier. Skimming his IMDb right now he's in so much insane shit but he's one of those people that like you've definitely seen before he was also in twin peaks so yeah you would totally have seen him before in something hard was he in twin peaks now i'm trying to think he was decker the like business partner with 
Catherine's supposedly dead brother in air quotes wish 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 yeah 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 i do remember him okay yes yeah yeah. Yeah. so they've all been around john reese davies is in this movie fucking gimli himself right (laughs) sala from indiana jones is in this movie as werewolf so yeah this is definitely like a fun cast for sure the second movie is also pretty fun as far as the cast is concerned have y'all watched waxwork too is it a good sequel because i saw it was only like direct to video right I think it was direct to video. I think it was just inventive. The greatest thing that Anthony Hickox had going for him is something. And honestly, I think whether it was in his mind super successful or not, literally he led. I don't know who who you know financiers were, but like he led direct into a sequel. Not spoiling anything for anyone, but if you watch Waxwork One, literally the hand that gets away at the very end of Waxwork One. I mean, it's almost like some of those movies back in the day where they would start right where we leave off. I like when movies do that, to be honest. It's almost like, hey, I've got steam. Let me fucking go with it, you know? And I think Aaron kind of said this, but I don't want to speak for him. But in some ways, there is some quality of Waxwork 2 that that I like more than Waxwork 1. I think it's yeah. just he really does amp up the fun factor. And he's like, well, well, where the fuck can we go now? You know? And it's just, if that's the question, he gives the answers. Well, you can also tell his skills as a filmmaker have improved so much between the first movie to that one. So, yeah, it's a lot of fun, for sure. I would definitely seek it out, Derek. The other thing I thought was interesting, I, I we could probably end on this note. This isn't a remake of anything, but this was inspired by a 1920s German film called Wax Works that came out, I think, in 1925, 24. And I remember reading up on it, and it's actually an anthology movie. I think there were three different stories, but the one that was most interesting to me, and, and this might be one of those movies that like is one of the very early predecessors to horror. I remember reading at the last short in this anthology is called Jack the Ripper and it was like a five minute short or something and like it basically is this writer finds a wax model of Jack the Ripper has come to life and is actually turns out to be Spring-Heeled Jack the cryptid (laughs) okay it's basically him and his daughter of this waxwork museum they can't escape Spring-Heeled Jack like apparently there's some like nightmare logic to the short I didn't watch it I just remember reading the synopses of all these as like Spring-Heeled Jack catches up to him and is drawing the knife to kill them the poet wakes up realizes it was a dream and that was the short there were a little bit of like i could see how this movie was definitely an inspiration to 1988's waxwork sure um and it's just interesting i wonder if anthony hickox because this was also written by him i wonder if he like studied that film during film school or something and was inspired by that to make waxwork i might try to find that and check it out then i I didn't realize i had never heard that it was a loose remake of that one so i will definitely try to check that out it's not so much a remake it's more of an inspiration but you can tell that he was inspired by aspects of it for this movie hell yeah all right cool cool well let's go ahead and wrap it up this was a lot of fun fun movie definitely check it out Waxwork has been on Tubi TV. I watched it for free, yeah. It has been on Shudder in the past, certainly. It's readily available. There is a Vestron Blu-ray that actually has both movies on it. So that is definitely worth checking out if you're a physical media person. So yeah, this movie is definitely like easy to get. Watch it. It's a lot of fun. Kelly, 
Thank you for coming on. It's fun as always. We, we've got two or three that we've got you kind of tagged for. We're going to get you on more often going forward, timing-wise and everything else. Hopefully, like, not long after the holidays are over, we can get you back on. So this was definitely a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on again. Yeah, thanks for coming back because it's always great to have conversations with you. And thank you for recommending Waxwork. This was, like, something <laughs> that I wasn't expecting and I really enjoyed. I'm glad y'all enjoyed it. Thank y'all for inviting me i i definitely will will be back i can't wait to come back because this is i can talk movies all day so definitely oh, yeah. always a, a great place to be when i'm talking movies hell yeah well yeah we will definitely have you back on probably hopefully sooner rather than later for sure but well, yeah hell yeah let's go ahead and wrap it up so yeah once again this is watch if you dare another episode horror movie podcast hosted by me your movie monster boy aaron and my cowardly co-host derek in which we dissect the fears phobias and social relevancy of horror movies across the ages as well as discuss just how scary they are for horror newbies like derek and horror junkies like me uh so yeah that's basically it as always you can find us on social media at watch if you dare on twitter and facebook definitely listen to all of our future episodes and rate review subscribe follow on apple podcasts spotify amazon google podcasts at this point everything pod dean all of them right just good podcasts we are there as always big thanks to my little brother jesse mansfield aka party gator for the music bumps the beginning and ends of all of our episodes you can find more of his music on Bandcamp at party gator or possums or big clown total side note otherwise i would have promoted this a little bit more ahead of time but it was nice getting to see them play uh this past week they had a vaccination required show at one of the venues that we used to go to a lot when we were in college so it was nice to be back there again for the first time like in a long time like even pre-covid so they put on a great show and uh yeah keep a ear out to social media they might be coming to a town near you soon but yeah beyond that do we have any other final thoughts derek all right which one of you put acid in my drink again sally wait a minute i gave up drinking hologram no hologram right definitely sally